The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Sabre. Did you know that there are 38,000 carjackings and 6 million car accidents occurring each year in the U.S.? Now you can protect yourself and your family with Sabre's new Safe Escape Automotive Tool, the only three-in-one car tool of its kind. The Safe Escape features a seatbelt cutter, a stainless steel glass breaker, and Sabre's maximum strength pepper gel. Protect yourself and your family with the new Safe Escape from Sabre. Available now on SabreRed.com. That's S-A-B-R-E-R-E-D.com. Use the offer code American Road to receive 20% off your purchase. We are so happy to have you with us. Today we are going to talk to a gentleman who in five decades of living has done more than most people would do in twice that amount of time. What an extraordinary gentleman we have. This gentleman is Tony Craig, and according to American Road Magazine, he's gone from drawing the mouse to making a masterpiece of Main Street. He was educated at Winthrop University, and this is all fascinating stuff, but I would love to be able to get to just really the tip of the iceberg where the artistic career and the continuing directorial and production capacities of Tony Craig meet the interests of those who not only love entertainment, but have a fascination with American roadside history. Tony Craig, welcome to our program. Hi, how are you? Doing very well indeed. We're just delighted. I look here at your, your resume, Tony, and I gave away your age. I got some years on you, and you just leave me breathless when I think about how you studied art at Winthrop University. That's in Rock Hill, South Carolina. You made your way out to California Institute of the Arts. You've worked as an artist in the animation industry for 23 years on shows ranging from Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs at Warner Brothers to serving as executive producer and director on The Lion King's Tim and Pumbaa, 101 Dalmatians, a TV series, Mickey Mouse Works, House of Mouse, Lilo and Stitch, two video sequels to Lilo and Stitch, and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse before moving back to North Carolina and devoting more time to your own artwork, which in itself is extraordinary. Along the way, and I think this would be a good place to begin, Tony, you have worked with such greats, giants in the field, really, people like Chuck Jones, Gene Kelly, Bill Hanna, and Joe Barbera, and Roy E. Disney. You were born at the right time. You had a prodigious talent which you honed in the right places and destiny took you to where you could walk among giants. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah, we were very fortunate to start art school when Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out and that kind of kick-started a new age of animation, I think. It, it absolutely really, really did. brought people back into remembering how much they love the old cartoons and if you recall before that, the TV animation landscape was what it was. But when that came out, Disney TV put out their Disney Afternoon. Warner Brothers started up with Tiny Toons and Animaniacs. And I would say the 90s were just a powerhouse of animation production. 
Was there a sense in the industry, Tony, and you would have been one of the people driving it, that you were breaking new ground, that there was a technology, whatever the origin of it, it was being used to great effect by people who coalesced around these unbelievably creative impulses and using a technology which 10, 20 years earlier would have been the stuff of science fiction. Oh, yeah. Well, who would have thought 25 years ago that we'd all be speaking on a little phone that we carry around in our pocket? <laughs> That's it's true. crazy stuff, isn't it? Um, but yeah, the movie I worked on at Disney after I'd been at Tiny Toons for a while was Rescuers Down Under, and that was one of the first movies they used to paint the whole thing in the computer rather than the traditional cells with ink and paint. So that was some ground that was broken, and from there they just kept using the computer to create advancements that for a while even live action couldn't replicate. For example, Hunchback of Notre Dame had that fantastic truck out from quasi space to show all of paris you would not have been able to do that in a live action movie at the time of course now we can do that in anything we could pretty much see anything we want in a live action film but at the time yeah you're right there was groundbreaking stuff being created for the animation industry tony i did want to give you the opportunity because you are one of those men of integrity in the arts who pay homage to those who have gone before you, the trailblazers, the creative geniuses, and I believe it's fair to say you've joined their ranks. I'm talking about people like Roy E. Disney, yes, that Disney family, Chuck Jones and Hanna-Barbera, and in asking you about these gentlemen, say as much as you will about them, I don't think I know anybody or have ever known anyone whose life was not touched in some way by their creative work and by extension yours well that's true chuck jones let's just say that i grew up watching saturday morning the bugs bunny and roadrunner show was my favorite cartoon on saturday morning and to get the chance to work with chuck jones via other most of my jobs have come about via friends and contacts that were made starting at school but somehow or another the call came through a fellow that I was working with and I were called and said, hey, Chuck Jones is starting up a little unit and he wants people to come over and pitch ideas and we want you guys to come and pitch an idea. So we decided what we'd do, which was a Porky Pig and Sylvester cartoon. Chuck did a couple of those where they went to that haunted hotel, if you remember that one. And I believe I did. Yeah, we had him as, uh, working as night guards in a department store <laughs> that uh, a guy was trying to rob. So of course, Porky was oblivious, and Sylvester saw it all. And we pitched our cartoons, and Chuck took us all to lunch over on the Warner Brothers lot. And then as we were leaving, he put his hand on my shoulder and said that he liked my drawings, and that was just the best thing ever to have that happen. So that was a real treat. They kept all the ideas. I don't know how many of them they actually made. I know they didn't make ours, but uh, it's still in a file over at Warner Brothers somewhere if they ever want to pull it out and redo it. That would be fine with us. And so that was the first big break. And going to work at Hanna-Barbera on a show that another classmate at CalArts had sold, we got to work with Hanna and Barbera. And they had their offices at, uh, still in the building. You could just go over there and talk to them if you wanted to. You'd see them walking around. <laughs> I remember that uh, Bill Hanna loved cake day. Every Friday they would have a cake day for everybody that had a birthday that week, and they'd have a huge birthday cake, and Bill Hanna loved it, and he'd get out there, and he had to be the one to serve the cake. 
but he had these gigantic, gnarly fingers, you know, with the hair on the back of the knuckles that you wow. might make fun of in a cartoon. And he would pick up the slices of cake with his hand and put them <laughs> on the plate for you and then lick his fingers off and then go for the next one. So, like, no, I don't, I don't want any cake. No, thanks. <laughs> and none for hungry. me, thanks. <laughs> no cake for me. <laughs> so, now, there's, that would be a good caricature. You can draw, mister. That would be really something to see. <laughs> <laughs> So that was just really cool to work with them, too, because my second favorite show growing up was uh, the Lap Olympics, where they had the scooby Doobies and the yogi Yahooies. I'm sure a lot of people listening remember that stuff. Yes, indeed. Um, and then working at Disney Television, of course, we started out on the Lion King's Timon and Pumbaa show, uh, went to the 101 Dalmatians show, and we just happened to be outside the executive vice president of the TV animation division's office, and they had development artwork for a Mickey Mouse program. And we said, hey, who's who's developing that? And he said, you guys are. Okay. <laughs> so that was all the uh, all the invitation we needed and started development on it. And we said, why not just make – everybody tries to pitch this big, high concept for Mickey Mouse and the gang and what they could do. Let's just make funny cartoons again. And that was the idea that everybody really sparked to. And Roy Disney thought it was a great idea. And he wanted to be involved and make sure we were staying true to the characters. So it was a requirement that we'd go over to his office at least once a week and show him what we had been working on, pitch him the cartoons. And he was the nicest. I'm just sad to think of it today that he's not with us any longer. I mean, here's a guy that was at the premiere of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937, and we're in his office. And he's got all this memorabilia and mementos and stories about his uncle and what it was like, and going over these classic cartoons with Nicky, Donald, Goofy, Minnie, Daisy, Pluto, it was fantastic. I mean, you couldn't even begin to fathom coming out of North Carolina, a small town, that that was where you would wind up working with Roy E. Disney in his office, and he actually was sitting in Walt's old office on the, in the original animation building on the lot. So he just that had is that amazing history. And, and he flew us to Canada on his private jet so we could go up to the studio that was animating some of the first cartoons for Mickey Mouse Works. And we spent a lot of time with him. So I really do miss Tony, that guy. He was a great guy. Tony, I wanted to ask you, being in the presence of Roy E. Disney, Disney royalty, as it were, yes, I can, I can instantly imagine how there would be a feeling of history, of heritage. How did Roy E. Disney communicate this family heritage and all that was accomplished, beginning with Walt. It all started with the mouse, Walt Disney used to say. Did he tell you little stories or pass on anecdotes that gave you a sense of Walt Disney himself? Not so much. Roy was his own person, but he did deeply care about animation. And I think that he was the main reason the animation continued at Disney once the takeover happened in the mid-'80s. It was pretty much under his insistence that the animation division be continued. And you see what a good idea that was when Little Mermaid came out. It was such a huge success. And then Lion King yes. became the highest grossing animated film ever at the time. And they realized, hey, this is a very viable division, so we do need to invest the time and money into this. And it's truly an art form that I just think wasn't being exploited because they weren't getting the uh, support that they needed before that to do what they were truly capable of. So, and, of course, um, computer animation, if you went on to do Pixar and stuff like that, and then coming back into the Disney fold, that's the, yeah. There are things that we, as 
popular culture consumers almost take for granted, which should never be the case, but it's easy with the proliferation of all these products, all these wonderful images. It's almost impossible to imagine a time when Snow White, as you mentioned, when Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out and received such uh, prestigious awards as the Oscars, for example, it was something that had no peer. There was nothing that fit neatly into that category. That's how stunning an achievement it was. People today might have a hard time grasping how original it really was. Yeah, I don't think at the time animation had been used to that effect to actually, well, that was what Walt pushed for was emotion and that's why I wanted to get into animation, the, the, the classic Disney cartoons. Here's a drawing, and I could draw. I wasn't very athletic ever, but I could draw pretty well. And here's a job where your drawings can make people feel an emotion, it can bring tears to their eyes, it can make them laugh, it can make them feel a feeling of suspense. And that was just magic to me. Uh, that's just incredible that a drawing could do that. I thought. So that's what I wanted to do since I was four. Since you were four years old and you've been achieving and overachieving, I would say, ever since. When we come back, I have more questions for our special guest, Tony Craig. Tony Craig is a, a masterful artist, but he's also a producer and a director, well-rounded in the arts. And his experience for being a, a man of relatively tender years makes for an amazing biography. More with Tony Craig in just a moment. I did want to let you know that there are 38,000 carjackings and 6 million car accidents that occur each year in the United States. That's an amazing thing to consider. But now you can protect yourself and your family with Sabre's new Safe Escape automotive tool. Sabre, the number one pepper spray brand trusted by police worldwide, offers the only three-in-one car tool of its kind. The Safe Escape features a seatbelt cutter to slice through malfunctioning seatbelts in seconds, a stainless steel glass breaker for speedy escape, and Sabre's maximum strength pepper gel with a range of up to 12 feet and 25 bursts per canister. That's one safety tool that helps you escape to safety after a serious accident and helps protect you against dangerous threats you may encounter while driving or walking to or from your vehicle. Now it's available at saberred.com. That's S-A-B-R-E-R-E-D.com. Use the offer code American Road to receive 20% off your purchase. Welcome back to our conversation with Tony Craig. He is an extraordinary man with an extraordinary career. And one of the things I would like to get into, Tony, is the fact is I read your biography. I'm convinced that you can take Tony Craig outside of North Carolina, all the way out to California and the world of Disney, the world of entertainment and all of that sensational pop culture. But I don't think you can take the North Carolina out of Tony Craig. And now at this point in your life, you have added on to or morphed into, you might say, an artist who works with watercolors in preserving images of America's past and keeping the memories alive. You do it beautifully. I've seen some examples in American Road magazine, and it just makes me wonder how much nostalgia plays into the expression of your own artwork. Well, that's a good question. Nostalgia definitely does play into what I'm trying to do with my artwork. And just 
so that everybody knows I'm still working in animation, but I'm splitting the time between animation and my own artwork. And with the advent of computers, we can we can do that these days. I can live in North Carolina and uh, send my work in. And the computer is also a valuable tool for my paintings, which I'll get to in, in just a little bit. But being in California and having my parents in North Carolina meant to a lot of frequent trips. And sometimes you'd have downtime between product productions. So I would drive cross-country. And back then, it wasn't such a toll on your body. And after I'd driven it a couple of times on the interstate, I decided to start exploring these side roads and see what was out there. And that's when I started to discover all these fantastic old buildings and neat places to stay that were individualistic and had something truly unique to offer that you could only get in that one spot. And enjoyed it so much that I started taking pictures. And each trip, I became aware through the passage of time that these things were changing or disappearing. And I better start documenting these things before they're gone because uh, they're, and I think they should be documented and preserved. I found a book called Photorealism, a book of photorealistic paintings where people try to, they don't try to hide the fact that they're using a photograph as their original starting point, and they try to make it look as much like that photograph as possible. But the memories that those paintings brought back, and these things used to be very prolific across the landscape. Now not so much because of the big corporations, they don't need these little outfits anymore, but I stopped at one particular one in Richmond, North Carolina, every year and would take a picture noting well, that sign that I like just now. Go, We'd find out these things are just vanishing. So uh, I was inspired by some local North Carolina artists, Cotton Catchy One, Bob Timberlake, some, you can look them up. They're really great artists, Alan Cheek. And I thought, I'm going to try painting these things that I like so much. And and so I did, and it's, seeing the neon signs on my cross-country trips seemed like a good place to start. So that's what I started with, neon signs and Route 66 stuff. And I've segued into local North Carolina things. I'm currently working on a series of paintings of signs from a barbecue chain here in North Carolina called Little Pigs. And I really, really enjoy doing that as well. It's a great outlet. Um, and I, But I also enjoy continuing to work in animation as well. It's just fortunate that I'm able to do both things uh, at the same time. And fortunate you are to have that much energy. That's just amazing to me. And you have a sense of mission, it seems to me, Tony, around recapturing roadside America, which has to deal with the, the fact of rapid change, the rapid pace of change. We saw this coming at least four decades ago when I first started hearing about it. They used to call it future shock, and here we are. And with that, there is the danger and the sadness, really, of losing the, uh, as you depict in the creeping vine up the side of an old gas pump, here is roadside America, the sense of Americana that is slipping away from us. I guess it's a great thing that people who are willing to invest time and money are preserving it as best they can, but with the passage of time, more and more of it slips away, and I can't help but feel sad about that, and I take it, so do you. I do. I mean, I'm not against progress and, and the wonderful amount of information that we have at our fingertips, but I don't like the fact that you can go to any city in the United States now and it looks exactly the same as the previous city you were just in. And it's really a challenge now to seek out and find these individual establishments, these 
restaurants where you can go in, the owner is standing behind the counter, and he knows he's got to give you good service and a great barbecue sandwich or a great hamburger or hot dog to get you to come back and not uh, frequent the chains and come to him. That's the individuality that I think built America, and it's sadly being lost for uh, something larger that's more convenient, but it's not as special, I don't think. I'm not going to disparage it, but I just don't think that it's as special as when you have an individual who would run his own establishment and be there to greet the customers and really take pride in his community. I can remember the last time, the last couple of times going back many years when a proprietor of a gas station behaved as you are describing and how special that felt. But look at it this way, Tony Craig. Today, you could get gas station sushi. Well, that is true. You can't get anything at the gas stations nowadays. You can I wouldn't dare. order in from the pump. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't you, think I would get sushi at a gas station either. <laughs> it, it's this is the changing landscape of America and, and and tastes and what people are looking for and how quickly they can get it. It really is a vast changing landscape. But going back to what I said a few minutes ago, I don't think anyone could take the North Carolina out of Tony Craig. There, when you think of a town that, unfortunately, when I drove past it, that was my mistake. I drove past it instead of to it. Uh, I should have really taken that off ramp. Mount Airy, North Carolina. That's such a special place, and you're well aware of it, to just about everybody listening to this broadcast and podcast. They think of North Carolina, at least sometimes in terms of the Andy Griffith show. We grew up with it. And they think of Mayberry and a Mayberry mentality. You've been there. It's a heritage that, at least to some extent, is preserved and uh, over which the North Carolinians take a justifiable pride. Tell us what that's like to be there where the Andy Griffith show played out back in the 60s. Oh, that was great. When I first moved back to North Carolina, I bought an old mill that was built in 1886 and lived in it, and that was 20 minutes away from Mount Airy, which is what Andy Griffith based Mayberry on. In fact, the name Mayberry came from a little community up along the Blue Ridge Parkway in Virginia, and that's where his grandparents lived. Uh, you just get this feeling of instant family when you go into Mount Airy. I mean, it seems like you're on the set of the Andy Griffith show. The store owners are so cordial and friendly. They've got the movie theater downtown. They've got uh, the Snappy Lunch, which Andy mentioned in some of his comedy albums and on the TV show, and the guy that was running the Snappy Lunch then was still in the window making the pork chop sandwiches when I lived there. It's just a fantastic thing to go and visit this fairy tale land almost, I would say, that's just so cordial and down-home and what I think everybody's searching for in terms of uh, a nice, friendly, down-home place to live. And we all know that no place is perfect, but Mount Airy really achieved something that I think everybody would aspire to in their downtown. It was great. And Pilot Mountain was right nearby. That's a real place, too, Mount Pilot. I remember that being referred to in many an episode of The Andy Griffith Show, yes. And Raleigh was like another world. <laughs> Raleigh, yeah, three hours away, but it might as well have been to the moon and back. <laughs> That is amazing. What I read several years ago, uh, just before he died, Andy Griffith was giving an interview and he said, you know, when I think back on it, our show aired and to great popularity, great ratings 
in the 1960s, but the mood that we set was actually evocative of the 1930s. And I think that has a lot to do with this nostalgia for an essential America that for a generation, the greatest generation, so-called, there uh, certainly fell during the 30s, that Depression era and wartime and surviving that and going on to thrive. That's what you see with the Andy Griffith show, the 30s, but played out in terms of the 1960s for a contemporary audience. That's quite an achievement in itself. Yeah, I'm old-fashioned, and I don't have any qualms about being old-fashioned. I love the past. Uh, you did mention Gene Kelly earlier in the show. He was a consultant on a movie that we worked on. Uh, any link I can get to the past, I will take, because I love it so much. Maybe the future scares me a little bit. I don't know if that's wrong, but I prefer the past. I love the past. Yes, I do too. And sometimes it is scary to think in terms of what we can do with our technology today and not being sure about where we are headed with it. Technology sometimes outraces the better aspects of human nature is what I've found, unfortunately. Yeah, but going to all these different places, I found that overall, I think human beings are really good and strive to be as friendly as possible, not only in the United States, but in all the foreign countries I've been fortunate enough to visit in connection with animation projects. Uh, everybody overseas is just as friendly in China as they are here in Mount Airy in the small towns. That's the honest truth. And that's good news for everybody. As we are closing, though, Tony Craig, please tell us about your upcoming projects. Where and when can we see your work? Right now, I'm working on Animaniacs again, and that's just amazing to me that I get to work on it again. It's going to be on Hulu in 2020. Steven Spielberg is still executive producer on it, and that's going to be really funny, so I'd encourage everybody to check that out. I just finished working on uh, Scooby-Doo Guess Who, which is going to be on Warner Brothers Channel Boomerang, and it's also a very good show. And you can check out my artwork on my Facebook page if you do a search for Next Bend Gallery, like come see what's around the next bend of the road. Next Bend Gallery on Facebook, you'll be able to see my watercolor paintings and photographs. Oh, I can't wait to survey that myself. And of course, when you show up from time to time in American Road Magazine, that's always a good thing. Tony Craig, I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for being a part of this and contributing to our understanding of America. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning into American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep co-founders of American Road Magazine. I'm Gary Mance, and we all remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.